0: contracts, intellectual property, labor law, and much more. Make up to the, the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of End Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. I'm Tony Acostas. And I'm Evan Narr. Sadly, Tony and I are not together in a studio or an office today. We are recording on Riverside, but tomorrow we will be together for our viewing of Oppenheimer in IMAX 70mm at AMC Lincoln Square. 13 i'm very excited what how, how amped are you tony I, I i'm so amped
1: for many reasons one we got to go back to our favorite movie theater gotham, gotham planetarium <laughs> we love that movie theater to death uh second my tiktok for you page has been littered with oppenheimer memes like mm-hmm. they're mainly the memes that sh- i guess there's like this filter that's buzzing now with uh, blue eyes like really bright blue eyes and the meme kind of reads no one colon and then the next line absolutely no one colon killian murphy throughout oppenheimer and it's him in like a pensive state with his eyes wide open with like the in- incredibly chiseled jawline that he has yes. with the blue eyes just staring out and basically staring into your soul so uh i'm looking forward to kind of seeing that come to fruition as a result of seeing all these tiktoks and then third i'm especially glad to see it in such a unique perspective and I don't have to look up at the front row while everybody looks like Thanos right in front of my face.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, we're in the I think the second to last row. I'm very excited to be going with our good friends uh, Stephanie Weisenberger, yeah. who uh, is actually a former protege of yours as well. Um, Absolutely, yeah. My good friend, uh, she had her own blog. I don't know. I don't know if she still keeps up with it, um, but she was awesome, and she works a lot with uh, our friend Dan Lust, too. Yes, on a on a sports law program, a mentoring. Young students as well. So that's awesome. Add her on LinkedIn. And then also uh, my friend Alex Whitaker, who is a movie savant uh, more than I could ever imagine. So truly, very, you met your match by having him as your friend, honestly. He, he makes me look like trash in terms of movie knowledge. So <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll definitely uh, have a lot of fun tomorrow. So looking forward to it. Um, but for today, episode 26, we have a great pod, a juicy pod for you guys, if you will. First of all, we will be talking to you guys about the recent ruling by a federal judge that reaffirms the fact that we knew all along that artificial intelligence is not copyrightable. And we'll talk about that in the scope of film or excuse me, studios and whatnot and how that can give some studios pause on this ruling. Additionally, we're going to kind of go into the sports realm, I guess, in honor of mentioning uh, Stephanie, Stephanie Weissenberger. We, we invoked her
1: name. We wooled it into existence. The gods,
0: the gods. Um, <laughs> we'll also be talking about this very spicy New York Knicks Toronto Raptors lawsuit that Tony actually sent to me. Was it yesterday or two days ago? I want to say it was it, like two days ago. I think it was two days ago. You're right. Um, where a former employee of the New York Knicks shared proprietary information. With the Toronto Raptors organization about scouting reports and uh, players and whatnot. So we'll go a little bit more into detail about that. And congratulations, Tony. I believe this is your fifth year teaching at New York Law School. Yes, yes. Fifth year of teaching. And now you're teaching entertainment law this uh, this semester. Entertainment law, yep entertainment law, and uh, had a, I think you said about 52 people sign up for the class? Actually, we're now up to 56. There was 55 as of yesterday.
1: A student wanted to sit in and audit the class, liked it enough that they signed up. So we got
0: 56. Easy money there. 56 (laughs) there. And uh, in honor of Tony teaching there, uh, we will share our Favorite law school class and the professor. You know, both Tony and I went to New York Law School. Uh, If you've been following since episode one, you would you would both know you would know that. Um, But we'll share our favorite law school class during our time at New York Law School. So without further ado, let's dive into it. But before we do that, almost almost caught myself there, Tony. Tony, read us our Miranda rights, (laughs) The
1: Miranda rights. As always, Evan and I are are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, and form. And anything that we say in today's episode is to not be construed as legal advice.
0: All right. So the first topic we want to talk about is this AI lawsuit that was recently in the news. Uh, We saw this from a Hollywood Reporter article written by Winston Cho. Uh, A very interesting lawsuit. So a federal judge. So the importance of the federal component here is that it kind of serves as a guiding post for all 50 states. It's, It's federally mandated here. And a term of art that we use in the law is precedent. When you are making an argument, you often look to former cases, either in the same jurisdiction or federal is even better because it's really binding law that can help support your point. So the fact, the fact that it's federal will be very important because of the, uh, component that I just mentioned about precedence as well. So, uh, let's get into it. Setting the scene for you. Basically, there is a man named Steven Taylor, uh, who created an AI generated work and the work in the complaint is called a recent entrance to paradise and he seeked copyright protection on this work. However, the judge, uh, Beryl Howell, the U.S. district judge, ruled that copyright law has, quote-unquote, never stretched so far to protect works generated by new forms of technology operating absent any guiding human hand. Tony and I have spoken about this before. In order to have a copyright protection, there must be some human component. And we're really entering a uncharted territory here of AI. Can an AI work that is generated completely by computer, even if a human gives a prompt to that AI, get copyright protection? Judge says no. Tony, as a professor and as an IP extraordinaire, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Massive ruling. This is definitely important for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this is the first piece of case law that we've got on the books related to AI and copyright law. No questions asked. This is a landmark case in every sense of the word. Number two, as Evan had mentioned at the top of this uh, segment, um, this is a federal case. So this is especially important because copyright is uh, regulated at the federal level You have the district court making this ruling if dr stephen thaler disagrees with this decision it is obviously at his discretion to decide to escalate this to the circuit level which in this case i believe dc district court is falls under the third circuit so now he could appeal this to the third circuit the third circuit would likely agree with the ruling that comes from the dc district or they could make up their own law it's very possible but it also means that this could lead to a pipeline all the way to the Supreme Court, and trust me, the, the Supreme Court picks out their cases in a very meticulous yep. manner. I bet you any bottom dollar they'd be willing to take this case because this could have long-term, long-standing ramifications in the intellectual property space. So obviously, this is uh, you know paramount from that perspective. Um, I really think that this lawsuit underlines all the more how important human authorship is to to the essence of copyright law. And for all intents and purposes, let's all make sure that we're on the same page here. Copyright The Copyright Act of 1976 does not clearly define what it means to, uh, well, it doesn't even lay out human authorship as a requirement. All it says, as its pure definition, is that copyright is an original work of authorship that is fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Based on certain words like originality, uh, creativity, those aspects of the definition and other legal jargon that exists in the Copyright Act, you could infer that a human author is only capable of making works of authorship. But for all intents and purposes, the Copyright Act does not say anything else beyond that, does not make any reference to it explicitly. The compendium, which is a guiding uh, is a g- form of guidance by the Copyright Office, that's the only other place where you have a reference to human authorship, and they lay out that only a human author can be worthy of receiving copyright protection, not anything else, not an animal, not a deity, not uh, any unnatural, uh, you know, non-human beings. They basically, those cannot get, they cannot be capable of being the owner of copyrighted material. So I think that that's uh, profound in that way. And third, this is, you know, even though this is the first AI lawsuit in the realm of copyright, this is actually kind of like the continuing doctrine that has existed in case law, where it reaffirms that non-human entities uh, can't, can't receive copyright protection. Probably one of the more iconic cases to touch on this point is Naruto v. Slater, which is the monkey selfie case for anybody that is uh, probably aware of that iconic viral photo. The whole premise of that lawsuit was, could a monkey be a copyright owner? And the answer is no. The answer is, even though that they could that monkey can make a copyright by touching the shutter button on a camera, they can't contemplate or understand the rights that come with being a copyright owner. So for that reason, they can't be the copyright owner in the same way, anything that is AI generated AI platforms can not contemplate the work that comes with making copyrighted works. Uh, They they can't understand the rights that come with it. Uh, Putting in prompts in uh, on stability, on mid journeys on open AI or any other platforms Those are not capable. That's not enough to say that it reaches the level of satisfying human authorship. So profound in so many ways, but that's at its core what I take away from this lawsuit.
0: And there's so many great uh, little snippets here that Judge Howell wrote. You know, so many great. one-liners that you can take so away. So
1: many zingers. I, I really love this opinion, and so for so many reasons, it kind and, of reminded me of the uh, the scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when uh when uh, of course uh the great Gene Wilder was quoting the contract and you know it was going on. You know uh it, it all it's all there, black and white, clear as crystal, and it's like it felt like that when I was reading this opinion.
0: It's very interesting, and also another thing that Tony and I were just talking about before uh, the show. You know, you may be thinking, what if can you get um, ownership in something that's like taken from a camera or or a video recording? So one thing that uh, Judge Howell wrote here is while cameras generated a mechanical reproduction of a scene, uh, they do so only after a human develops a quote unquote mental conception of the photo. Which is a product of decisions like where the subject stands, arrangement, and lighting, among other choices. And Tony kind of just referenced this, you know, uh, about the the monkey case here, right? Um, so, to, and even to
1: that, and even just briefly to that point, think about like Christopher Nolan, but even think about other filmmakers, uh, especially let's say in the world of animation, or or even let's use live action. Like I think of something like superhero films. It all starts with concept art. The concept art is the vision that the filmmaker yep. has, the producers have, the the writers and all that. They put the idea from their head pen to paper, and then from that they create the costumes, they create the set decor. The vision comes to life, but it all starts with what's in their mind, and that's what I think makes that more worthy of copyright protection versus something that is AI generated.
0: Right, and Tony mentions Christopher Nolan. I mean, we've been talking about him because Oppenheimer. So you know, for him to to, to talk with his uh, cinematographer and, uh, you know, with with, with the writers, room. even though he is a writer director, how am I going to film uh, the atomic testing sequence? You know, w- what shots of Killian Murphy's face am I going to do here? That's the mental conception. That's the human involvement. And Judge Howell, this is a direct quote, Human involvement in and ultimate creative control over the work at issue is key to the conclusion that the new type of work fell within the bounds of copyright. So, you know, again, these these things that are recorded uh, that is technically digital, right? You know, the things that are recorded on a on a camera or on a uh, IMAX film camera are only derived after the mental conception of what will be in that actual uh, footage. So very interesting. I'm trying to see if there's any other cool quotes. Uh, you know, just talking a lot about human creation. Um, yeah. It, it, I, will, I will say, though, that
1: this is definitely going to play a heavy hand in the status of these SAG and... Right. We need,
0: that's what I mentioned at the, at the top. Right. We're, we're, one of the huge things is about the WGA being concerned, or even SAG, that they would be replaced by AI. And one of the things that is so important to these studios is IP. Literally, all these big hits are because of IP that is owned by certain studios. Uh, you know, you have Transformer spin offs, Ghostbusters spin offs, like Teenage Mut- Ninja Turtle just came out, uh, which I believe is a Paramount pro- uh, production. And the fact that they can't get any copyright ownership over AI related scripts could give pause and also is huge ammunition for the humans, the, the writers, and the actors you're shaking and, your head
1: and, and i was going to even add think of uh, another great example is secret invasion the intro sequence for secret invasion was generated using artificial intelligence and in a situation like that it also makes you wonder like you know marvel you know was willing to go out find someone that was capable of using ai generated technology to make an intro sequence for uh, a limited six part series i mean when you go to the copyright office, you see that those episodes are registered in the copyright office. It only makes me wonder if the copyright office was only willing to give them copyright protection for the actual substance of the episode and exclude that intro. And I mean, like, honestly, uh, this might be, this might, this decision might be the catalyst that ends the strike. I mean, from your perspective, do you, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think it may end soon, but do you, do you agree? Do you think that like it could end soon?
0: I think it can end soon. Um, I'm hopeful. Uh, I don't know. I think there I think there was a recent meeting between Bob Iger and the higher ups, like, you know, telling them why it's reasonable that they should accept uh, a certain proposal. Um, So I don't really know. But I I think that this lawsuit, uh, this this ruling, I don't know if the studios are like, you know, like doing that, Michael Scott from the office scene. Oh my god, it's happening, it's happening. But they, like, certainly, it should give studios pause about the outlook moving forward. Um, it, this, so also feels
1: like, this also feels like the Michael Scott paper company episode where he forms his own paper company and then ends up getting bought out by Dunder Mifflin. Basically, didn't get his way, but it ended up happening, having a solution nonetheless at the end of that episode. So it's like, you know, it, it feels like AMPTP was like ai ai that's what we're all in on and then this ruling happens they've basically gotten cornered and they're gonna have to accept whatever proposal i think comes across their uh the bargaining table for sure
0: yeah we'll see um we we somehow spoke about the strike even though we have been so good about not. Talking about <laughs> you know but, how they have like in like like workplaces they have like days
1: without incident like seven it's a mon- monster's inc basically for hours it's like weeks you know weeks without talking about the strike now we got to Erase it zero. back to zero.
0: <laughs> Very interesting. So uh, a, a huge case and will definitely have rippling effects uh, for better or for worse. And let's move on to the next topic here. We have the New York Knickerbockers, the New York Knicks basketball team and the Toronto Raptors basketball team. Canada's own Drake's a huge supporter of the Toronto Raptors. They won <laughs> the NBA championship. I want to say 2020. Um, I think that's right. Oh no, 2019. It was the year before the pandemic. Correct. 20- and then it then it was yeah. the Lakers, the Bucks, and the who won it this year?
1: Uh, n- uh nuggets. Oh. nuggets. Nuggets, of course. Nuggets. Yeah.
0: Like uh so it, the Kawhi Leonard and uh Fred Van Vliet led Toronto Raptors. Anyway, was,
1: what a combo, man.
0: <laughs> and and now they're either they're on the Clippers and I believe the Raptors respectively. Oh, excuse me. Uh the Rockets respectively. Uh so we have the New York Knicks, a team that has certainly been uh Better In recent years with the signing of Jalen Brunson, uh, Julius Randle, of course, they haven't yet made it over the hump just yet, but they're certainly uh, doing so. Uh, Leon Rose is the GM there and Tom Thibodeau, who has a wealth of experience uh, leading the Knicks. So now this is a lawsuit regarding a lower level employee, or he started off a lower level employee. I'm going to absolutely butcher this name, Ikechukwu chuk, Azotam. That was very uh, good. Ikechukwu Azotam. Kind of like the guy that plays uh, the high evolutionary, Chuck Woody. Uh, <laughs> what, what ch- Let, let's call this guy Chuck. How about that? <laughs> that's,
1: probably, that's probably the easier way to pronounce it.
0: And, and Mr. Azatam, I'm so sorry for the horrible mispronunciation. Um, we're going to call you Chuck, though, for he's both mine and Tony's sanity here. Um, so Tony knows a little bit more than I do about this specific topic. I did read a little bit on it, uh, but I'll, I'll kind of give the broad understanding of what I, I'm led to believe is happening here. So Chuck uh, worked for the Knicks from 2020 to 2023. And he just recently signed an employment agreement with the Raptors. He's now working with the Raptors. Uh, initially, Chuck was, you know, a director of video analytics, player development assistant. Uh, you know Sorry for me saying earlier that it's a lower level. That that plays a huge role in scouting and, and player, uh, you know, performance. So, you know, it's, it's not the head coach is what I'm trying to say. Either way, he sent to the Raptors uh, thousands of of confidential proprietary files, including a a prep book for the 2022-2023 season, video scouting files, opposition research, and according to uh, the lawsuit, which I read, whether you want to argue with it or not, the New York Knicks have a certain way of going about doing business and, and wanting to build a team and to give away the trade secrets, for lack of a better term, of how they do that is cause for concern. Uh, Tony, fill in a little bit more of the background here on what Chuck did.
1: So uh, the lo- Chuck full information, no pun intended, in this uh, whole uh, lawsuit here. <laughs> I'm glad you got
0: that. I think it's chock full of information. Is it Ch- Chuck chock?
1: full? I, well, it's my New York accent for whatever reason that's <laughs> making it sound like Chuck. Uh, but I'll go with the pun here. So, yeah. um so according to this complaint, uh, Mr. Azotam had signed an employment agreement that lays out very strictly a lot of provisions... Um, Related to information that he would gather in the course of employment. So this is actually an excerpt from the complaint. And the complaint actually reads, and I quote, At all times during and after the employment term, employee shall maintain in strictest confidence all confidential or proprietary information concerning the company or its business or organizations. And that would include any confidential or proprietary information. Um, this includes without limitation, financial data, customer, guest, vendor, or shareholder list or data, advertising, business sales, or marketing plans. And then underlined here, tactics and strategies, economic or commercially sensitive information, trade secrets, playbooks, mm. scouting reports, draft strategies, trade strategies, player injury, medical conditions, so much more. This is what he agreed to as part of his employment. And so as Evan mentioned, uh, you know he was hired. He was hired by the Knicks. He worked for them for about three seasons before he was hired by the Raptors. And it was kind of like in that weird stage when he was facing out of his Knicks employment and going over to the Raptors that he ended up emailing himself from his Knicks email mm. over to his personal Gmail that then was sent to Raptors officials, including the brand new coach of the Raptors, Darko uh, Rajakovic. Um, sent all or Ryakovich, if you want to be more formal, uh, sent all those scouting reports, videotape footage, everything that the Knicks had on opponents and even on their own players, sent it over to Raptors professionals. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, in every sense of the word, I could have I could have told you this blindfolded. This is this screams trade secret misappropriation, and yeah. actually, trade secrets are a very underdiscussed aspect of intellectual property. I often teach it in my intellectual property class that there are six branches of IP. Uh, obviously, the big three are copyright, trademarks, and patents. Then you can you get into trade secrets, trade dress, and personality rights. Trade secrets are very underdiscussed, and you know mainly because you know, you, you they're hear pretty about it, forward. they're pretty yeah. straightforward. Right. Um, like for example, the Coca-Cola recipe is a trade secret. If you were to go to Atlanta and go visit the world of Coca-Cola, you will go and see the vault where the secret recipe is actually held and is watched 24 seven with even like radars and lasers. Yeah.
0: Unrelatedly, I just, I, I don't know why my mind went to this, but do you think that plankton in SpongeBob is create is, 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 participating in trade secret misappropriation by trying to steal the Krabby Patty formula. No
1: questions asked. And to the, po- and to the point that uh, I'd use that example all the time when I teach trade really? secrets I, from the okay. SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Yeah. Um, another great example is actually, do you, did you ever watch Good Burger, the movie, the original Good Burger movie? No, I have not. Okay. Watch it. That's a great movie for many reasons. It's a Nickelodeon classic, but um, Good Burger, the whole premise Ke- of it is that
0: Keenan and Kel, Keenan and Kel are in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, so, Kel Mitchell's character Ed, uh, who's like this, you know, uh, like very, like ditzy fast food worker, he makes a secret recipe to help Good Burger generate sales, and it it does so well. And their competitors across the street, Mondo Burger, want the secret recipe to, uh, to the Ed secret sauce. So trade secrets, we've seen it in so many forms in in media, like Plankton, like Good Burger, and we see it in the real world. That would include Google's algorithm, held as a trade secret. Uh, The Coca-Cola recipe, held as a trade secret. Even the Big Mac sauce, even though we all know it's Thousand Allen dressing, that's a a trade secret for all intents and purposes in the McDonald's Corporation. So these scouting reports aren't like recipes or anything of that sort, but they are trade secrets. And the reason is because the whole premise of a trade secret is that it's information, whether that could be a recipe or data or, um, you know, information, whatever the case may be, that would that qualify as a trade secret that is not readily ascertainable. Efforts are done to maintain its secrecy. Competitors want it. And there's a bit of a financial component to it, meaning that there is some type of financial viability to that information that is being held secret. Now, obviously, the first question you always want to ask in these situations is, was the product in the first place a secret? And the answer is yes. This was held a secret for all intents and purposes. Where is there a world where a team is willing to give out all their scouting reports to other teams? If the whole premise of it is to gain an advantage and to make the team better, of course, it's going to be held as a secret.
0: And Tony, I want to underscore what you just said. I think in the actual complaint itself, they mentioned something about a poll being taken that 90% of... uh, Folks that are in the higher-ups of a um, sports franchise would not want to divulge this information, like scouting reports and things of that nature. 90%. Oh, here it is, right here. In a recent survey of the in-house counsel for teams in the four major North American sports leagues, basketball, baseball, football, hockey, 90% of the respondents said they would assert trade secret protection over scouting reports.
1: Yeah. So clearly... Something that, uh, that, that wants to be that, protected. That's proof positive right there. Um, so we know that this is a secret. And obviously, um, there there's an intent for the Knicks to keep this a secret. And I think that what they've got on their hands here is trade secret misappropriation. Um, you know, the fact that in the tenure of his employment, he had access to this information and while still being a Knicks employee, emailed it over to Raptors officials. I mean, that that's just egregious in every sense of the word, a violation of his employment contract. Um, obviously, the claims in this lawsuit include uh, violations under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a no joke act to, to make an allegation under, a uh, violation under the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which is the federal law that governs uh, trade secrets uh, federally in the United States. Um, then we've got violations or allegations of breach of contract, which makes sense. And on Justin Richmond, but I want to say one thing that, and, and then I'll, I'll you can chime in, Evan, I sure. have to, I, and I'm, and I'm really don't mean to sound so crass or even mean, but you, this guy is an idiot. I'm sorry. He's just like, <laughs> it's like as dumb as a brick because in the complaint, he talks about, it talks about how he forwarded the information to his own personal email and front and center in the subject line, he has the team name. For example, in line forty-one of the complaint, Indiana game eighty-two. Who is he talking about? The Indiana Pacers. Line forty-two. If you go down, Denver advanced scout report. Who is he talking about? He he's not talking about the Denver you know Rockies. He's not talking about any other Denver team except the Knicks. He never took any initiative or. Effort. I mean the Denver Nuggets. The N- Denver Nuggets. Sorry, that's what I meant. In, and in you the, actually Denver
0: ironically Nuggets. said the Rockies, which is another Denver Colorado team. That's right. So you weren't, yes. you weren't too far off.
1: But either way, I mean, like he's just – this guy made no effort to try to conceal his act. It's sure. not like he could have said grocery list as the subject line. Like at right. least like try, but he didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, it, this just is like bona fide idiocy at its finest.
0: So a couple of things. Yeah, Chuck, sorry. We don't mean to be so crass. but Not, uh, not trying to
1: sound slanderous. It's just pure opinion here. I, I just yeah. – if I if I were to if I were an employee I would have done it so much differently but I would never do it to begin with.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, as as Tony mentioned, you know we we spoke about pun intended the slam dunk case behind misappropriation of trade secrets. But and he, he you know Tony was mentioning the laundry list of other charges: breach of contract, tortious interference with contractual re, uh, relations, conversion, unfair competition, unjust enrichment, everything under the sun. Really, what, what my question is. How did the Raptors allow this? They, I I mean, like, clearly, clearly, someone had to know. Go ahead. I'm I'm not going to lie to you, and I think you're going to agree with
1: me. Adam Silver is going to launch an investigation, and there could be sanctions of the Toronto Raptors. For sure. I'm calling draft pick uh, emissions, just like what happened with the Dolphins with the NFL draft this past year. Yeah. It's going to happen. They're going to remove draft picks for upcoming drafts.
0: I mean, you, the, there's no way that the Raptors organization is so naive to not know the information that was given to them. I mean, and you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a Patriots fan. I'm defend them to the end of time. What this is different than Spygate? This is not recording an, Right. This is not recording another team's signs when you know. If if um who's the coach of of the Knicks? If Thibodeau is like you know putting up the number two or whatever, like this isn't stealing. Like oh, two means a pick and roll from the point guard to the small forward. No, this is straight up like scouting reports, like things that the Knicks team uses for a competitive advantage. Like you know, and, and it's so much more than just recording someone's signs. If you know, depending on where you what school of thought you fall in on the whole spygate uh series but
1: actually you just for that mentioning that it just jogged my memory what the raptors have engaged in would qualify as corporate espionage which Mm. is a massive aspect to this whole trade secret misappropriation world so corporate espionage is a massive aspect to trade secret misappropriation and you know the one thing to bear in mind about trades about corporate espionage is that you know it's Basically, a corporate entity engaging in activity that would otherwise be criminal under you know under whatever violations exist under the Defend Trade Secrets Act. So, if they engage in activity that would qualify as theft, bribery, uh, spying, whatever the case may be, that is in every sense of the word uh, a violation under law. So, I, I think that that just that reinforces all the more how this is a sanctionable offense by the NBA. I think that Adam silver is going to pull, you know, he's going to pull the, you know, uh conduct detrimental to the league uh, card here. And he's, he's going to go after them real hard. And this could, this is going to be big. I mean, n- nobody's really talking about it now, but trust me, this will have larger ramifications. And maybe this is going to unveil like a whole culture that may be even happening in the NBA, because like for example, ever since Calvin Ridley got slapped with gambling, as of as a I think when he was with the Falcons, um, I mean now all of a sudden the NFL has been going after hard and finding out other athletes that are engaging in gambling activity and and yep. you know sanctioning them with suspensions. So oh yeah, very possible that this, we're going to see maybe other stories like this in the coming coming years.
0: Yep, I agree. So we'll see what happens there. Um, I hope the Raptors at least benefited in some capacity from this or it would have all been for naught. I, I,
1: uh, I hate to sound so defamatory, but it's like <laughs> you're going to really find the Knicks place useful. Like, really? <laughs> like go, go for another team.
0: The he Heat... went there. He went there, guys. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't Sign, think anyone would. Signed
1: a disgruntled Nets fan.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone would would go behind spos back there. They have a they have a Whole culture there. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's the end of substantive information. But, you know, I guess this can be somewhat substantive in terms of our favorite law school class, our fun topic of the week. Uh, Tony graduated from New York Law School in 2013. 14.
1: 14. 14. Coming up on the 10 year anniversary, which is crazy. Wow, you old man. Uh, And (laughs) I graduated
0: in 2021. So, we're not too, too far removed uh, from being in school, and we did have some overlap of professors. Um, with that being said, Tony, why don't you go ahead and tell us your favorite law school class? And don't worry, I won't pick your class. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um,
1: so I'm going to go with uh, probably one of the greatest professors to grace the halls of New York Law School. You're going to uh, say Sherwin. I, yeah, absolutely. My I knew it. <laughs> the, the goat of all time. Um I, I'm I'm going to Richard go
0: Sherwin. Through. Sorry, I cut him off.
1: Richard Sherwin is honestly such a legend at New York Law School. He has thirty years under his belt. He's now a professor emeritus, so he's no longer teaching at the school, but truly was a mentor of mine and has a wealth of knowledge and experience at in the law and everything under the sun. Uh, a media law expert in every sense of the word. Um, but I'm gonna go with the class that made me fall in love with his teaching style and him as a person. and uh, that's gonna be the torts class. Just the prose and the way that he talked about cases was truly poetic. Like anytime he talked about Learned Hand, who we've talked about on the podcast or Cardozo, it's yeah. like it, it's like he was their hype man, and you could not have asked like it's like listening to Morgan Freeman narrate a movie it, it's, it's true. It's truly epic in every sense of the word. Sherwin just really mastered the art of teaching effectively. Uh, I really loved his torts classes. It made 1L a bit more palatable, but him as a person, he became a mentor for life and someone that I really uh, called on when I needed uh, guidance throughout the rest of my time in law school. So uh, I'm going to go with Professor Sherwin for torts.
0: A couple of things I want to say about that. I was lucky enough to have Professor Sherwin twice. I had him for Torts and then Visual Persuasion, Same which here. was a which was a class about using uh, visual stuff in the courtroom to help uh, speak about certain points. Like you know about the the Sullenberger case, Sully, the 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 pilot that flew a plane into the Hudson. There was a recreation of that uh, that was shown in court, and how, how that may have swayed a jury, or what what was the importance of that really really great class um for me it's kind of a tie between the two uh classes i'm about to say my, for a 1l class it would have to be contracts with professor chris franklin uh, she was the bedrock of and my entire job now is contract related stuff and she had such a way of she was a little scary but in but when if you tried She really likes you deep down. And I actually recently saw her at New York Law School when I went to go visit. We had a quick run in because she had a a family emergency. But she's always been so great. I had her for family law and practice, too. She was uh, a great 1L professor, and I did very well in her class. I participated a lot, and she really set the stage for my interest in being on the transactional side of uh, law rather than the litigation side. And then tied with that would be uh, a good friend of mine, Professor Joseph Forgione, for IP Licensing and Drafting. I actually taught one of Professor Forgione's classes last year, and he's he's asked me back to teach another class in September uh, for his students this semester. And IP Licensing and Drafting wasn't exactly what it sounds like. We didn't do a lot of practical, practical drafting, but Professor Forgione brought in um, pr- professionals from all different areas of the IP world, at all different companies, one of which is now my boss, Ariana at Beanstalk, uh, to talk about their their work and what are the things you need to know. And it really helped me see the different angles of IP law, of course. And his um, final was very on point to what we would have done for the MPT on the bar exam, gave us a closed world sort of background. I think ours was on the Kardashians or something. Wow, that's uh, fantastic. Re- really really informative and i and i love i love him very dearly and i'm going to be teaching his class again on um licensing in the world of film and entertainment again uh this semester which i'm very very excited for so I, i'm
1: gonna i'm gonna sneak into that class again <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what was the name that you came up with again
1: so for anybody who doesn't know when evan told me that he was going to guest speak for uh professor forgeone's class um you know i, I was elated of course um but i needed to figure out a way to get in so you know i i wasn't going to tip it tip off joe i wanted to joe forgione so i wanted to come in secretly so uh cat gumarin who uh, we mutually know who was my ta for ip and entertainment law last year she was a ta for professor forgione she gave me the link i joined and i joined as gary bobby ferguson And we had to to do like this round table of all these different intros. So I was without a camera on and I said, hey, my name is Gary Bobby Ferguson. And I had to tell what my favorite 1L class was. And my favorite movie was uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. And... (laughs) I knew immediately
0: I, it was Tony. He
1: knew who it was, so then I showed myself, and then uh, it was a good laugh. It was great.
0: That that was great, and I, and I had great feedback from that class. So Tony, I have to say, as someone who teaches uh, regularly like yourself, that that gratification you get from making a difference uh, in students' lives. And, you know, them trusting you, I've had so many people reach out to me and ask me for advice and, you know, uh, thank me for taking time and whatnot. It really means a lot. So I mean, the fact that the work that you're doing, the work that I'm kind of doing, you know, on on a more limited scale, it means a lot. So uh, and we're always here for everyone. We've always been that way. We've spoken about this since episode one about our altruistic tendencies and wanting to give back. So uh, we are here for all of you. And thank you for listening. And just a, a quick announcement, we are going to be kind of having a shortened schedule moving forward uh, because I will be away on vacation for Labor Day. Uh, so there may be some lag time before uh, our, our next few episodes, but fear not, we're not going away permanently just uh, while the summer is winding down. Uh, and Tony, over to you for the thank yous.
1: Yes, uh, as always, we want to thank Hunter Aaron for the intro song. We also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Shake. You can join Shake, S-H-A-Y-K, on the App Store using referral code ENDSCENE. You can join Evan and I on our huddle where we discuss extra entertainment law topics that don't make the podcast, but it's also your chance to ask any questions about entertainment law topics. Um, We're not recording in studio, but as always, we want to give a shout out to PNT Knitwear Podcast and Bookstore located at 180 Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. And most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening to this week's episode of End Scene, and entertainment law podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at End Scene Pod. And until next time,
0: End end scene. Scene.